Good morning, Taproot. We are full today. That is so good to see. My name is Spencer, and I'll be reading the word for us today. Um, When I finish reading these 27 verses, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and as a church, we will prayerfully respond with, speak, Lord, your servants here. So today it's Matthew um, chapter 21, verses 1 through 27. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And Jesus went and did as Jesus had, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled and saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered, Truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests And the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered them, 
I also will ask you one question, and if you tell, them, tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord. Speak, Lord, your servants. You may be seated. Let me pray. God, what what an immense um, passage. And I'm just reflecting in this passage um, in this season of Advent, in this season of anticipation. um, As we are here this morning with fresh hearts and ears um, just to hear of your coming once again in a, in a new light. Um, I just pray that we're, we're humbled by your presence as it, as it is with us today, now, um, but ultimately we're humbled by your presence to come and just this anticipation of restoration of kingdom, of just knowing a little bit more of what your kingdom is like. Um, So today as we hear your word, as we just bask in what uh, has been prepared for us and what the Spirit um, will ultimately distill and teach in our hearts, um, I just ask that we continually throughout our weeks um, remain in this season, in this heart of anticipation for your coming and um, kingdom come. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Spencer. Good morning, Tabber Church. My name is Will. Um, I'm one of the pastors here, and I get to get up here every once in a while and preach God's word, and this morning is no different. Um, If you're a guest here, I just want to say welcome. We're glad you're here. We exist to know Jesus and to make him known, and uh, welcome to Palm Sunday in December. Does that sound good to everybody? We're here, like normally this is like, this is a passage that gets taught right around Easter time. Uh, And here we are in December going through it. And this naturally landed here. This is where we're at as we're preaching all the way through the book of Matthew. And um, Spencer nailed it in his prayer. Like, I love it. I love that Spencer, like his prayer was around like, it's cool, this season of Advent, we're anticipating Jesus coming to this world to do what we are so thankful that he does, right? That he's come to save and he's come to change all things. And so that anticipation uh, is building for us all through the month of December. That's why we, we celebrate Advent as, a, as Christians. This is a big deal. We're excited to anticipate. Yes, man, we get a, we're, there's a day coming where we're, we're like, man, happy birthday, Jesus. And that's fun. Uh, this, this passage is really cool to bring in here because it's all about anticipation. Um, and, I, and we love that feeling. I think we really love that feeling. Uh, one of the ways I was um, thinking about how we love that feeling was, um, I don't know about you, but myself, I really like a good heist movie. Does anyone like a good heist movie? Right? 
Like a, like a movie where like, you know, like the whole like 75%, the first 75% of the movie is this like buildup to this thing that you know is coming, this, this group of people are coming together and you're understanding who are the protagonists and who are the foils, like who are the antagonists in the scene and what's gonna happen. And then there's gonna be this like thing set into motion that we're all gonna like observe and we're gonna be on the edge of our seats being like, okay, like, oh man, that happened in the plan. And then that happened and that, oh man, remember when they were setting up the thing and then the thing happened? Like you're doing that in the whole rest of the movie. You're like, oh, this is so awesome. And you're just like in it, you know? Um, when I've been working on the sermon and like thinking about this, like this idea, like this anticipation that Jesus has finally shown up to this city. Um, I thought of my favorite heist movies. I said movies. And no, it's not the ones that deal with oceans. It's, it's actually, it's, it's a Christmas heist movie. And it's, they're, they're my favorite. This is like my family's Christmas movie. You all probably have a Christmas movie. What are some of your favorites out there? Like, what are some favorite Christmas movies? Absolutely, 100%. Home Alone is the best heist movie, you guys. It is the best one out of all of them. I love it. And I love it because I can sit and I watch, watch it with my family. No weird stuff happens. Wonderful things happen, right? Uh, Home Alone 1 and 2 are the best heist movies. Here's why. Because a heist movie, you have to understand. A heist movie requires a really great, wonderful protagonist character of some sort. Sometimes it's a group of people. In the wonderful movie of Home Alone, we understand Kevin McAllister, the, main, the man with the plan, right? And what he does, he's, he, he, you know, the whole movie, you're kind of, you're understanding who Kevin is and what Kevin's doing and what he's about. You know, you have the scene where he like puts aftershave on his face, right? The classic I love it. My kids were like, what is that? I'm like, we don't use aftershave anymore. We don't know what that is. Just understand it burned really bad. Um, but you're building up to this thing and then you're introduced to like kind of the antagonist, right? The foil, the, the like, he's gonna have to combat these two goons, Marv and Harry are gonna show up and they're gonna try to steal from the house. And so Kevin McAllister shows up and he, he then like, he, he, some things kind of transpire in the story to where he goes like, all right, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna step into my role and protect my home. And then he like, he lays out this plan and then this moment happens in the movie. It's one of my favorite moments. It just like, like I watched this with my kids. We literally watched Home Alone 2 last night. So it's just real fresh, just so you know. But it's, uh, um, it's that moment when like my kids are just about done. They're like, they're not, they're not for this anymore. They're like, come on, something's... And then the music plays. Do you know what music John Williams is a genius because he has this song called Set a Trap that plays like, and you see a clock and then what it is is like Kevin has embraced, like he's going to set up his house in this amazing, elaborate, crazy, fun house of destruction for these two goons. And this music plays and it just like, it, it does this thing in us. It gets us excited, right? I'm not gonna pretend to like do the, 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 the ditty right now, but it's like, it's so, so good. And just, it gets you like, you're just, you're there and you're like, oh man, something's happening. And there's a scene where like he unfurls the whole map of the house and you see like, oh, this, he's got a plan. Somehow he, he, he conjured this map up in 20 minutes, I'm pretty sure. But somehow he has this plan and he goes around the house and you get this montage where he's setting it all up and then, and then everything kind of like gets set into motion, Right? Like, that's, that's why we love the heist movie. Not necessarily because we love watching people steal stuff. Um, and not necessarily because we like slapstick comedy when, when bad guys get bricks thrown in their face. I, that's fun, right? Like, that, that's, that's there. But, like, we, we love it because it's all been kind of 
coming and culminating to this like great moment where there's this like amazing payoff. Like something like, and then you're just locked in for that last 30 minutes of that movie because it is just rich and it's wonderful and it's so fun. And I, I just, I bring that up because I, one in the spirit of Advent and the spirit of our text today to say that like that anticipation, like we just showed up and Jesus has just like, we're at the moment. Jesus has intentionally planned every moment of the next seven days and he, he knows what's to come and it's going to be wild. And we're going to all buckle in for the next, for, for chapters 21 through 28 of Matthew. And we're just going to see the mastery, the majesty, the wonderfulness of Jesus on full display for the next chapters of Matthew. And we've reached the moment where the song plays and we're all like, okay, what's Jesus gonna do? Let's do this, you know? He's just unfurled the map and he's, showing, he's gonna demonstrate to us who he is, why he's here and what he's gonna do. And it, and it, and it gets us excited, it gets us thrilled. We're at this point in the story that like, that, that's why we love a heist movie. Now, don't hear me, I'm not saying Jesus is gonna set a trap and steal things and lie to people. Like, no, Jesus is intentionally going to show up and he's, he's not going to necessarily say it at the beginning, but he's going to declare it through his actions, who he is. And so that's why I've, I've titled this sermon, Jesus is Better, because what I want to look through, I want to work through each of these little sections of this narrative and just notice that Jesus is going to be putting himself on display that he is the better king that he is the better high priest and that he is the better prophet. And ultimately, when his authority is challenged, we're left there knowing that Jesus is the better savior. Like that's what we're gonna work through this morning. And so what I wanna do is I kind of wanna, I just wanna work through this text. It's long, it's mighty. I don't have 27 points. I kind of have four, so hang with me. Um, But uh, what we're gonna do is we're just gonna kind of work through this because when we can like, sometimes um, we, we can kind of get out of context with scripture and, it, and sometimes we can miss things, okay? One, thing, one rule for those that teach the Bible um, is that uh, context is king and that we have to understand that what, like, this can only mean to us what it first meant to the original audience, Okay? So what I want to do is it's going to be kind of like a history lesson. We're going to kind of work through this and really dig into the historical context of what's going on because Matthew fills this narrative passage with tons of context and clues to help us understand what is Jesus doing here. And even when we get to the wild moments of like a fig tree getting withered by Jesus because he's hangry, like that all means something. It's all intentional to help us understand that Jesus is very, very intentional He's got a plan, he's got a purpose, and he's focused. And he's letting those that have ears to hear and eyes to see to be able to catch on to understand that he is better. He is better. That when we settle for anything less than Jesus, we will ultimately ultimately be let down. But when we can learn to accept Jesus in who he says he is, in who he declares himself to be, in who he truly is. If we accept Jesus on his terms, that can transform our lives. It can enrich our lives. 
and it can help us to become who we've always been created to be. But we can't get that out of order. And that's what this is all really about, is Jesus is going to put on display who he is, and then we, the, we the, the reader, the audience, we get to leave here just like the, the, author, the leaders leave, and we get to ask ourselves, are we going to accept Jesus on who he says he is, or are we going to want something different? Okay? So let's dig in. Let's go. Let's get to work. So my first point is, uh, is that uh, Jesus is the better king. Um. I'm going to read this first section here. It says, Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, this is Zechariah chapter 9, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. All right. So yeah, so we commonly call this the triumphal entry. And again, it's, it's our Palm Sunday text. It's the Sunday before Easter Sunday. And it's this moment when Jesus, like all of his ministry has been kind of culminating and leading up to this moment. So all through the rest of the book of Matthew, we've been getting to know Jesus. We've been getting to know who he is, what he's doing. Uh, we've been getting to see him teach, perform miracles, uh, confound the religious leaders of his time, uh, say some pretty wild things. And we've been just kind of walking along with Jesus this whole time, but all of it has been, been all pointing in this direction to where one day he was going to show up in Jerusalem and he was going to fulfill one of the main tasks he had come to fulfill. And he was going to take on his role as the true king. Okay? Okay. That's why everyone followed him, because they, they had a hope, like, this, this guy could be the Messiah. This guy could be the promised one who's come to rescue us, to save us. And so people had already begun following, because they saw inklings of, of this person, Jesus. And so that's why there's a group around him. That's why there's a crowd. That's why these people are following him, because they're thinking, this, this guy might really be the one. He really might be the promised one, the, the, the one that, that we know is going to come to rescue us. And so what we see is that Jesus is very intentional. This is all on purpose. Um, this is all happening at a very specific time. Jesus has orchestrated and intended to show up at a specific time. Does anyone know what time of this is, what, why it's significant? What's that? Passover, this is Passover week. This is a big deal for the Jewish people. Good job, Molly's like, got that one. Um, This is Passover week, this is a big deal. Or it was known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so those are the two terms for this. The idea being is that this is a big deal for the Jewish people of this time. Um, Jerusalem would have been different than normal. So archaeologists, they inform us that um, the normal population for Jerusalem at this time would have been about 50,000 people. I, I don't know. There's, that's the size of people, right? 
And they would have lived in Jerusalem. We don't know how we know that. We just know that. And uh, during this week, there would have been an influx of about 150,000 additional people in Jerusalem. Can you imagine that? Like imagine if like Twin Falls' population quadrupled in like in one weekend, in one week. Like we just like, it would just be packed. It'd be full. And imagine inside of like city walls and the surrounding cities and whatnot, this is just, this place was busy. It was really busy during this time. And Jesus shows up very intentionally. Like, like I just imagine like his disciples were probably like, hey, when are we going to get to Jerusalem? When are we going to get to Jerusalem? And Jesus always had a plan. Like I'm going to show up in Jerusalem at the right moment. And here it is. It's Passover week. It's intentional. It's very intentional. And we know on this side of everything why it was so intentional. Because during Passover is this really uh, great event and great moment for the people of Israel when the way you celebrate Passover is you sacrifice a pure and spotless lamb. You cover your door frame with it. And the idea being is that that's, that's a representation of the blood covering you of salvation. Because back in the time of when they were slaves in Egypt, they'd performed this act and the angel of death would pass over any house that had the blood of the lamb on it. And instead, the, if you didn't obey Yahweh, didn't obey the Lord, didn't follow through with this ritual of this lamb covering you, lamb's blood covering you, then the angel of the Lord took the firstborn son. And that's something that Israel remembered as a, as a key to salvation because that was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to say, that, that ultimately led to the freedom of Israel out of Egypt to become their own people. And so this week is, is, is one that they memorialize every single year to celebrate their, their victory, their salvation by Yahweh. And Jesus has shown up at the beginning of Passover week intentionally. And we know that he is that pure spotless lamb that he is going to be sacrificed and ultimately cover and save those that follow and worship him. And so we see that the time is intentional, but then as Jesus enters the city, we see that his actions are very intentional. What does he do? He says, all right, disciples, I'm going to send two of you. You're going to go into this town. The first donkey and colt you see, you're just going to untie him and take him. This would have been robbery right? Except uh, one of two things. Uh, commentators are split on this. This is really interesting. I always just assume that this was like a miracle, that Jesus just did his, his Jesus thing, and it just had a miracle thing kind of happen, where it's like, like the person, like as soon as you said, the Lord needs these, the person would be like, cool, take them. That's fine. Like he was like, like that thing. This could be a miracle. It absolutely could be. I'm not saying it's not that, but it also could have happened naturally. Jesus very much could have just set this up with someone he, like he had met during his ministry earlier on and said, hey, you live right south of Jerusalem. I'm gonna be stopping by in a few months. Uh, can my people come and grab a donkey and a coal from you? And, he, and, and, and if you're like worried about people stealing your stuff, they're gonna say, the Lord has need of this. And you're gonna then just let them have it. And the guy was like, sweet, let's do it. Like that could have happened. Like Matthew, none of, the, none of the gospel writers ever make this clear that this is a miracle. I just find that so interesting, but I, I think it's good. I think it's good either way, right? Because I think it's good if it's a miracle, you're like, awesome, Jesus is just doing his awesome Jesus thing. That's great. Go for it, Jesus. Um, on the other side, 
it just shows the intentionality that Jesus has a plan. Jesus has a plan. He's, want, he's intentionally wanting to do something here, and he's had this plan for who knows how long. Like, he's going to show up in Jerusalem, and he is going to make a statement. Okay? So whether it was natural, whether it was a miracle, the disciples get the donkey. But what's the significance of the donkey? He wants to ride in on this donkey intentionally because it means something very significant, right? Um, let's keep reading. Let's just keep reading so we can get that, the whole context of that. It says, they brought the donkey and the colts and put on, their, uh, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. I don't know how he sat on both donkeys. It's interesting. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds uh, that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Okay, there's a whole lot in there, guys. Um, first of all, uh, I, I want to make this point. Do you realize that this is the first time that Jesus intentionally draws attention to himself? Because what has he done all the, every single time up to this point? He's been like, shh, don't tell anybody. It doesn't work. The people tell about him, right? But like, this is the first time that Jesus is really, he's like, he's going to show up and he's going to say, bring it, bring it on, yes. Like, he's not telling them to be quiet. He's not telling them they're wrong. Like, he intentionally, he gets the donkey. He shows up when this place is bursting at the seams. He shows up intentionally to make a declarative statement through his actions, right? It's really interesting because up until this point, Jesus has been kind of quiet about everything. He's been trying to keep things kind of quiet about himself. Um, but here we see Jesus intentionally drawing attention because he wants to make a statement. Um, but here's the thing. He rides in on a donkey. We have to understand why that is. So there's a few reasons. Um, one of the reasons is what a donkey represents. So uh, when a king rode into... So here's the thing. They didn't have 24-hour news channels. They didn't have the internet where you could just get your news all the time. So it was a really important in the time that when someone did something, it often meant something, okay? So a king, what they would do was they would ride into their city in different ways. During times of war, a king would ride into the city, the, the, their, the, the city of their kingdom. He would intentionally go and do a whole promenade into the city to declare we're at war. And how they would do it is they'd get on a big old war horse and they'd show up with all their armor on and everything and their really fancy stuff that was no good in actual combat but made an intentional statement of like, look at me, everybody. And they would enter into the city to declare we're at war. And everyone would go like, oh, snap, we're at war. The king just, and they would just spread like wildfire because everyone would talk about it. And they'd say, the king rode into the city in their armor, on their war horse, we're at war. Everyone, we're at war. Um, but when that war was accomplished, and when there was victory for the king, because they were still king of this place, they would intentionally go out and have a promenade where they'd ride in on something like a donkey, a lesser beast of burden. 
that represented that it's done. Peace is here. Look at me. I can wear my just normal, my, my normal kingly stuff and I can show up in the city all safe and secure because I have delivered victory through, through, this, through this action. Like here I am showing up as a harbinger of peace was what the representation was. And then everyone would talk about it and it would spread really, really fast. And everyone would go like, okay, we're at peace now. Guys, we're at peace. Awesome. Open up the trade routes. Let's do the things. We're good. It all meant something. Um, Jesus means something even a little bit deeper. Like his meaning goes even a little deeper than that. That's part of his meaning. But uh, there's two things that are also going on here. Uh, There's already a king in Jerusalem. (laughs) That was an issue. That's saying a different statement. And especially that he's doing it on a donkey is really interesting. And would have really confused the crowds. I think the crowds would have loved Jesus to be on a war horse, right? Because what did the crowds want? They wanted Jesus to show up and take over the kingdom. They wanted Jesus to show up and kick in the doors and say, hey, we're ruled by the right ruler now. But that's not how Jesus shows up. But he is also making a very declarative statement by showing up on a donkey, okay? So that's one thing. Here's the other thing. And this is why the crowd knows what to chant. Because when Jesus shows up, they all say, Hosanna, son of David. Because they're remembering about 800 years ago, about another king that rode into this great city on a donkey. Do you know who it was? Not David. That was a good answer. Solomon. There's this moment that happens in 1 Kings when David has just finished handling the coup that his older son um, Absalom commits. He tried, Absalom, bad older son. He tries to take over the kingdom and David's like, at war with Absalom and, those, and all the defectors and whatnot for a while. It's kind of a wild moment in, in scripture. And um, go back and read it. It's the end of 2 Samuel. It's crazy. But, uh, and, and all this stuff happens. But then when David secures victory over Absalom, he goes to go enter back in the city and he, he puts his son, Solomon, the rightful heir to the throne on a donkey and rides it into the city to declare, hey, we're done. And this is the actual heir is what the statement he's making. The son of David is Solomon to go into the city, okay? And then to declare this, like not Absalom, Solomon. He's a big deal. So then everyone will talk about it. Oh my gosh, the actual heir is not Absalom. It's definitely Solomon. That's who David intended. That, that, that's what would have been going on. But so Jesus now, some 800 years later, is riding in on a donkey and everyone is shouting, Hosanna, son of David. Because he's also making a statement that, yes, I am the son of David, the true king who's coming in to rule and to reign forever and ever. Isn't that awesome? Man, scripture is cool. Amen? Like, uh, it's just, I just love it. And so he's making that very clear statement here that, yes, I am the son of David. Everyone, I'm the son of David. And then they know to shout, Hosanna, son of David. Remember when Solomon came in? This is the, this is the truer Solomon. This is the better Solomon. Here he is coming in on a donkey to establish his rule and reign. Jesus is very clearly telling us that he is the king. He is the king. He can't say it out loud because it would speed up Passion Week faster than he intends it to. 
but he's making it really clear through his actions. And what we see, right, if we continue the story and we'll keep working through it, um, two things kind of to to point out. There are those who immediately say, "Uh uh-uh, that's bad, right? There there are those who already, we're going to see the word indignant used in a bit. They're angry about Jesus showing up in this way. Like, how dare he show up and claim to be this Messiah, claim to be this king? How dare he? Like, there are those that are like that. Here's something to realize too, though. The crowd, the crowd right now, they're for it. They're here for it. They're like, let's go. Let's go, King Jesus. But we know that six days are gonna pass here pretty soon. And we know that eventually he's not gonna be what they expected him to be. Because they have their own wrong expectations too. He's not going to come in and just kick Herod off the throne. He's not going to come in and just kick Rome out of Israel's land. That's not the kind of king he's going to be. He's going to be a king. He's not going to be the king that they wanted. He's going to be the king that we all need him to be, right? And so this is like really important because this is really like a theme through this whole section is are we willing to accept Jesus as king as he declares himself as king? Or are we gonna try to fit Jesus into our box to meet our expectations, our hopes, our desires, and so we can just use Jesus whenever we want him to be the king that we want him to be, but not actually let him rule and reign in our life the way he declares he's gonna rule and reign in our life, right? We gotta be really careful of that or we'll get lost in translation just like the crowds, just like the religious leaders, We need to learn to accept Jesus on his terms and not try to make Jesus fit our expectations, okay? And I also like, it just, it begs the question, who who do we truly allow to be king in our lives? A lot of us, we want to be king of our own lives, right? I want to be in charge. I want to determine what's good. I want to determine what makes me happy. I want to determine what makes me free. I want to determine how I spend my time, how I spend my money, how I spend my, my authority, my, my power, my significance. I want to decide those things. Don't take those things from me. That's why it's so important here to not miss it. We have to be really willing to lay down our own kingdoms and let Jesus be king. And here's the truth, guys, is that Jesus is the better king. You and I are really bad at it, right? Man, I make a mess of it. When I go my own way, when I choose my own paths, when I, when I, when I hold on to whatever thing I want to worship instead of Jesus, like I make a mess of it. Like, I have to be willing to to surrender my kingdom and allow Jesus to be the actual better king of my life. I think that's, that's some of what we can take away from the picture here, is he is the better king, so do we actually accept him as our better king, right? Let's keep moving. My second point is that Jesus is the better high priest, okay? Because where does Jesus go? He goes right to the temple. This is, this is very typical of Jesus when he enters the city. He goes to the main religious institution. So it says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. 
And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Let's stop there for now. Um, so Jesus, this is very typical of him. When he entered a city, the first thing he would do is he'd go to the synagogue. When he enters Jerusalem, the first thing he does is he goes to the temple. He just shows up in the temple, um, which would have been, like I already talked about how busy this place was. Like this would have been busy. Because again, the giant influx of people showing up, the 150,000 extra people, they all would have been wanting to get to the temple. <laughs> that would have been like their goal. Their, that, that they were beelining for this place, okay? And how it was working, because it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, um, you were bringing in people from all over the place, okay? Because it was Passover, everyone was showing up. They were making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem because that was a place where, man, if you could go and worship at Jerusalem, that was like the Super Bowl. Let's go, baby, you know? And they would like show up and they would want to, they'd want to go into the temple and offer whatever, their, their Passover sacrifice at the actual temple of Jerusalem. And then it, it, it was just like, it was just extra special, extra amazing because it's like that was the actual dwelling place of Yahweh. This is a big deal. And so... Um, when you have the temple, we have to remember, like there's, like, there's, the, there's the actual building in the center. There's a, a, a wall, a courtyard around that central temple space. Then there's a bigger courtyard with like another wall around that temple space. And then even inside of that, especially on one side, there's a pretty big corridor, the big old area where that's kind of where you entered. And that's where a lot of people actually couldn't go any further most of the time. Okay, because you had to be a Jew in good standing and cleanness and have your sacrifice ready to go any further into that temple space. Okay, um, if you were a Gentile, you could go in that first corridor area. If you were sick or blind or lame or unclean, you could only get that far. You could only you couldn't go any further into the temple. So what what they did though? Imagine the scene. We know 150,000 people are coming. What a great opportunity to take advantage of all these people because they have to go here, right? So the Roman officials, King Herod, high priest Caiaphas, were all hanging out together and decided, let's move the money changers of the city into the temple. Because what are money changers good for? They change your money, right? Because if you're a foreigner and you've got your English money or your American money, excuse me, our dollar bills, right? And we go to like somewhere else, we have to exchange that money to have the right currency. And usually we don't make money on that exchange, right? It's pretty common. Um, you can get gouged pretty easily with the whole money exchange situation. So if everyone's already going to the temple, let's stick the money changers in the temple and let's take advantage of those bad boys because they, they have to pay the money, right? And so everyone was like, like everyone's pockets were getting lined that were up high by this interaction, by this transaction happening with money changers, okay? So it's just, the whole goal was let's take advantage of all the foreigners coming into here and let's just, let's make a profit off of this, baby. Let's go, right? Yuck, gross, right? Um, and so that, that's one of the reasons why Jesus gets real frustrated here. You know why? Because Jesus is compassionate to the outcast. Like, that's what's being painted here, right? Here's the other cool one. 
Uh, he, he, Matthew highlights that he goes to the pigeon table. Do your, do your Bible say anything else like a different bird? Is it doves, okay. So for whatever reason, the word for pigeon and dove are pretty much interchangeable. They're, we know they're different birds. God knows they're different birds. But they're kind of the same word, okay? Um, I like the word dove because for some reason in the New Testament here, we see the word pigeon used. But in the Old Testament, we often see the word dove used. Does anyone, uh, like, is anyone reading up on Leviticus these days and they're, they're caught up on their sacrificial system laws and everything? Is anyone here with me? When you used a dove, it was really significant, wasn't it? So when people couldn't afford the proper sacrifice, like an ox or a ram or a lamb, because those were pretty expensive sacrifices to offer, if you were poor or marginalized and couldn't afford the actual sacrifice, you could offer a dove in place of it in many situations and circumstances because they were very cheap and affordable. Right? Isn't that interesting? So who is Jesus ticked off at? Who's taking advantage of the poor and marginalized? These dove tables. Darn it, right? And it's just, it's this picture that Jesus, our true good high priest, shows up in his space and he says, "Uh uh-uh, you are blocking the opportunity of worship of Yahweh from my people, the poor, the marginalized. Remember all the way back to the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, blessed are the meek? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Like these are Jesus's people. And what we see is we see Jesus, the good, best, better high priest has compassion on the poor and marginalized, has compassion on the outcasts, has compassion. And he's frustrated when he enters into his father's house and he sees it being used to take advantage of those very people. Isn't that infuriating? Talk about becoming indignant. Like we're seeing on full display that the temple is being used as a space to spin profit off of poor people. That's also why my mind kept thinking about heist movies, right? Because that's what's happening in heist movies. The poor marginalized are getting taken advantage of and the, you know, it's like a Robin Hood story. Let's steal from the rich, give to the poor. Jesus flips over tables and seats and he heals the blind and the lame. It's great. It's awesome. He's the better Robin Hood. Let's add that to my points. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so Jesus is making a statement here <laughs> that this is wrong and the people are being taken advantage of. And it's wrong. This is not just. This is not how the house of prayer is meant to be intended. And he does something about it. And then what does he do? We, we miss this part of the story oftentimes. We, kinda, we get really stuck on like the tables. Like the, and like another account talks about how Jesus like made a whip and he's running around with like a whip. It's just, we're like, whoa, Jesus. I mean, we've never seen him act like this before. But he's frustrated because he cares deeply about the poor and the marginalized, the outcasts, the, the ones left over in society. But we, we sometimes miss this part. Um, let's keep reading. It says, and the blind and lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said, yeah, yes, I do. And then he says, do you not read your Bibles? What a, oh, have you not, 
Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethlehem and lodged there. Cool. Um, and so, yeah, like I said, oftentimes this little scene gets kind of gets forgotten about because we get really like, whoa, Jesus is flipping tables. This is great, you know? But imagine the next scene. Like, then he plants himself. I imagine like he uprights a table and a chair that he just flipped over and he says, all right, bring the blind and the lame in here. Let's do this. Let's get the right people in here. Let's worship the right way. Let's do this. And he, he invites in those who were commonly not welcome in that space because this was for like, these were for like the good religious people, you know? Not for like the crippled, and the lame and the blind, like they were outcasts. They were yucky. They were difficult, right? And Jesus says, no, 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 let's get this, let's get this fixed. Let's get the right people in here who are ready to worship the, the true God of Yahweh here. And let's heal them while we're at it. And he, he offers up a healing clinic as he's always done. This has been part of his character. He shows up on the scene. He says, bring me the broken amongst you. And is that not what he says to every single one of us? Like, this is what makes him the better high priest because he says, bring me your broken. I can't fix what's not broken. If you don't think you're broken, you're not, don't come here. But if you're broken, if you're needy, if you're lame, if you're blind, come to Jesus because he's the better high priest who will actually meet our needs, right? But again, we have to accept him on his terms. We can't let our hearts get muddied by false hope and a God that's just going to be a genie and fix all of our problems. Like, that's not what he does. He does amazing things. But he's not a genie. He's a high priest. So we can't just expect him to make every little hard thing in our life better. That's prosperity gospel. No, what we can expect him to do is to be our high priest and to perform the right acts at the right time because he is going to go between us and the Father and he makes all things better because he fixes our broken state with the Father and invites us in back into Yahweh's presence. And that is where true transformation, true life, true worship is happening. What a good high priest, amen? amen. That's, that's Jesus. And he's coming in and again, he's not saying anything, but he's saying a whole lot from his actions. Isn't it cool? And then I love it when they're like, do you not hear what they're saying, right? Like getting mad at the children that are like saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And they're like, you need to make those kids be quiet because they're saying a bunch of stuff they shouldn't be saying about you, Jesus, you know? And he says like, yeah, I hear him. And then he quotes scripture to them. And notice the insult. Do you not read your Bible? <laughs> it's in there. Of course they read their Bible. They're teachers of the Bible. Jesus used that one a lot. He was pretty, pretty snarky, and I love it. Um, but he accepts it without having to necessarily say anything. Isn't that great? It's like on display. We see Jesus just on display here, and it's wonderful. Let's keep going. My third point is just that Jesus is um, the better prophet. Um, let's read this. <clears throat> In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. 
And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. (laughs) And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Okay. Now, um, this, is, this is wild, isn't it? I remember, so I, I, um, I became a Christian when I was about 14 years old. I was reading through Scripture, like I was eating up the Bible. Like I remember like someone gave me a Bible and like I didn't read before this, like books were yucky. I've said yucky multiple times in sermons. This is a yucky sermon, okay. Uh, I... I didn't like reading. I liked things like movies and video games, right? Like I, like, I wasn't a great student. I didn't do homework. Like, I was that guy. I'll just, I'm just going to confess that right now for you all. Um, but man, someone handed me a Bible. They gave me my Bible. And I was like, I just ate it up. And I remember I started in Matthew. And this was the first, this is the first story I remember that I went up to my pastor and I said, can you tell me about this fig tree thing? Because I'm real confused. I, if I was really reading closely, I would have been confused by a lot more before this. But this one particular, I was like, why is Jesus mad at the tree, man? Like, what's going on here? And I remember he gave me some answer. I don't remember exactly what he said. I think it had something to do with fruit, which is good. But um, uh, we, see, we see Jesus here in this, this really confounding moment. And it's good. It's good for us to kind of scratch our heads at this. I think that's actually really the point a little bit, okay? Because... Uh, for those of you that have read your Bibles, um, you've probably been reading for a while and you've come to some, some weird stuff here and there, probably, right? I hope you have, because there's weird stuff in the Bible. It's wild. And, and, and it, what happens is, like, I know a lot of times we get kind of like, har- we harp on uh, the Torah a little bit, like Leviticus is kind of hard because it's like the same. And then we get to Deuteronomy and we just do the law again, you know, and it's like, whew. It's kind of tough and tricky. Um, for me, one of the hardest places to get to in scripture is the prophets. Like they're really hard because you get there and they're, they're saying a bunch of stuff, but even more than they're saying a bunch of stuff, they do a bunch of weird stuff, right? Have you guys, have you guys gotten there before and been like, what's going on? Because, and see, what, that's, a, that's actually like, that's intentional in scripture. It's called sign art or sign, sign acts. Sorry, not sign art. Sign acts, okay? It's, these, it's this intentional action or thing that a prophet does on behalf of Yahweh, the Lord, to give a sign to the people of what's going to happen. And it happens a lot in scripture. Like some of the main prophets who use this were Isaiah and Ezekiel and uh, Jeremiah. I mean, those guys, they had lots of things that they did around. There were sign acts. And it's all through scripture. And it's intentional to like, to do something weird, even in front of a few people, but it was weird enough that the few people talked about it. That's why we have it in scripture, right? Like there's one point where, um, where Isaiah gets a command from the Lord to just go naked for three years. And he does. He doesn't wear a stitch of clothing for three whole years. It's in Isaiah 20. And he did it to symbolize, to give a sign 
that Egypt and Cush were messed up uh, kingdoms and they were naked because they had the wrong kind of worship. Like it was all just an intentional act to make a point to the people to be like, it's all messed up. Um, Ezekiel, Ezekiel um, chapter four, that's what it is. Chapter, uh, Ezekiel takes a brick and he like carves Jerusalem on this brick and he puts this brick down, like imagine like the city square. And then he like builds like a little like siege against the brick. And he attacks the brick with all these things. And he gets all the way down to where like, it's like, he's the camera. And he's like, it's in, like, it even says it, like he bared down on the image of it. And he looked at it and he just like attacked this brick in front of everybody with like sticks and stones and stuff to make a point that Jerusalem's gonna get besieged at some point. Can you imagine like the, the wackadoodle? Like, the, like these people would have been like, what is going on? This is wild. But we know that that came true, okay? That came true. That happened. Like Israel, or like Jerusalem was besieged and everyone was sent into exile off to Babylon. Like it really happened. And Ezekiel framed it by this weird brick attack in the middle of the town square. Just like, it's just like, man, scripture, you guys. And uh, I believe that's very much what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is very much being a prophet. He's very much making a declarative statement to his followers that the temple is going to be destroyed. That Jerusalem will fall because there's gotta be something better. He has already said this. Like he has already prophesied that things are gonna go down. But here, I, I imagine Jesus having seen the tree and knowing it already doesn't have fruit, went up to it intentionally to make this point, to say, this, fruit, this tree has no fruit, so therefore it will be destroyed. And then, and then imagine this, okay? So they're right outside the city when this all, with this fig tree, because it talks about like, uh, Matthew does a really great job giving us this picture. Jesus is coming back in from Bethlehem, back into Jerusalem. As he's entering back into Jerusalem, he sees the fig tree that bears no fruit. He goes up to it because he's hungry, maybe a little hangry, you know, and he goes to get a fruit. It doesn't have fruit. He says, I, you're not gonna bear fruit ever again. And then right before everyone's eyes who's there, this tree withers. Really wild sign act. And then his, his apostles or his, his, uh, his disciples, they're, they're marveling at him. And they say like, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus says, oh, it's no big deal. You'll do it too. But right, isn't that weird? Um, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive it. So there's two things going on here. One, Jesus is teaching on faith because he's a good prophet that tells his people to believe and to have faith in Yahweh. That makes him a better prophet. I'm not gonna dig into that a whole lot. Jesus has actually already taught on that and he's gonna continue teaching on this idea of like, if you have faith, even a little faith and don't doubt, amazing things can happen. Now, all those amazing things happen according to the will of God. We have to understand that. Like when we have faith, we're having faith that God's gonna do what he's gonna do. And so then he points at this mountain. What did, what did they call the temple mount, Right? I, I imagine Jesus here, he's withered this fig tree and he says, you can say to this mount and toss it into the ocean and be tossed the ocean. It's just more of this picture that this place is going to be destroyed. 
It's going to undergo something wild that's going to wreck a lot of people's faith in something that's not real anymore. Because a new covenant is coming, because a better prophet is here, a better king is here, a better high priest is here, a better savior is here. And he uses the sign act. Here's the thing. This whole fruit thing is going to come up a couple more times in Passion Week in the next seven chapters. This idea that Jesus really cares about the fruit. He doesn't care about your accolades. He doesn't care about your authority. He doesn't care about the power. He doesn't care about your wealth. Jesus cares about the fruit. And what he has seen so far as he entered Jerusalem, as he entered the temple and saw how corrupt it was, he sees that the leaders of Israel don't bear fruit. There's no fruit. It looks pretty. It looks really nice. It's all set up for Passover week. This is great. But there is no fruit because you all don't even care about the poor. You don't care about the blind and the lame. You don't care about the outcast. You just want to spin a profit on all this and make yourselves feel better about yourselves. There's no fruit here. And Jesus cares about the fruit. What's beautiful is that any single one of us can bear the fruit. There's no caste system that separates us from being able to bear fruit because the fruit has nothing to do with wealth or authority or uh, position. See, those have no, like our, our America would like to tell you that you, get, you grow fruit by having a bigger bank account, by having a bigger car, by having a bigger house. That's how you bear fruit in America, to the God America or the God Western civilization, whatever you want to say. But how you bear fruit in the kingdom are things like kindness, love, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And those fruit are not kept from any person, no matter your position or status in the world. Isn't that awesome? But Jesus cares deeply about the fruit. And he, he warns his people that just like this fig tree just withered, this, this way is going to be destroyed. The leaders of Israel are fruitless. They're barren, just like this fig tree. But it, it helps us know what Jesus really cares about. He cares about the fruit. That we would be people that have a desire to be flourishing. And the only way we can flourish is by connecting to the true vine, the better king, the better high priest, and letting him be a fruit grower in each of our lives. So again, this, this requires surrender on our part to accept, to accept Jesus how he is and who he is, okay? Um, we're going to see the fig tree again. We're going to see some parables about this. And this is going to be actually kind of a theme through Passion Week, this idea of fruit. So just kind of as we continue working through this as a church, it's good. It's good for us to see this pattern. Scripture is full of patterns, and fruit is a big one during Passion Week, during this, this final week of Jesus' life. Um, it just helps us to know that, man, he, he really cares about the fruit. Okay, let's land this plane. 
So the last section here says, and when they entered, and when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question and you tell me the answer. Then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we, will, uh, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So he answered them. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Okay. I mean, the key, the key moment in all this is when, they, when the religious leaders come up to him and they grab Jesus and they're like, I, will ask, I, I also will ask you one question. And he uh, or no, sorry, when they say, um, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? That's really the crux of it. And that's the question we need to ask ourselves today. By what authority does Jesus do these things and whose authority? And, re- and really ask ourselves, are we willing to surrender our lives to him? Do we really believe he is better? Because he's come not only to be the better king or the better, um, um, the better high priest, the better prophet or fruit grower in our lives, or he's, he's come to be the better Messiah, to be the better savior. Because he's gonna change everything after this crazy week, after this crazy moment in history. It's all gonna be new. And we stand on this side of the cross and this side of the empty tomb. And things are different now. Yet we still have to ask ourselves the question, do we surrender to his authority given to him by the Father? And can we allow ourselves to trust him and actually have faith that he truly is better than anything this world might offer us. Anything our fleshly desires might offer us, anything the enemy might offer us, we have to ask ourselves, do we believe he is truly better? And when we look at, I just hope when we look through scripture like this, we see that, man, Jesus is better. Jesus is more. Jesus is marvelous and incredible. But we have to remember, we have to accept him on his terms. And so let's ask those questions. Let's wrestle through this together as a people. And I pray that if you're here right now, just going like, I want this to be real. I want Jesus to truly be my king, to truly be the one who goes between me and the Father and gains me access. I want him to grow fruit in my life that is good fruit. And commit to that. Let's commit to that together, family. Let's be for that together. And let's just see what Jesus does through it to transform this world around us and transform the lives of people around us and to be for the people. Amen? All right, let me pray. Father, thanks for this day. Thank you for this time where we can worship you through just like digging into your word, by singing song, by, um, by celebrating Advent. I pray, God, that we would, we would just 
we would be excited about these moments. Um, we'd be excited to know that there was a time when you showed up in the great city and you caused a stir all to proclaim who you are. And I pray, God, that we would accept you on your terms. We would trust in your son, Jesus, to transform our lives. We would trust in you to just help us to, to not desire the, the wrong kings, the wrong idols, the wrong priests, the wrong whatever, but that we would, we would desire what you have for us, God. May you bless us and transform us and make much of yourself. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.